Welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast with Ian and Johnny. Discussing our passions of sport, OCR, running, and fitness to help you perfect your craft. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast. Now, before we get started on the second part of our 5KM performance series featuring Tim Bailey, the sprinter who went on to run a sub four minute mile and a sub 14 minute 5K, we want to give a shout to our amazing partners, Red Dot Running Company, who are the go-to store for all your running, trail, and sports nutrition needs in Singapore. Many of the brands that our guests have mentioned on the podcast, such as Tailwind and Beat It, are available at RDRC, and they are passionate about sourcing the best brands worldwide, and we are proud to be associated with a company we love and are also focused on helping athletes perfect their craft and unlock their athletic potential. We also want to say a thank you to everybody who has written to us and spread the word on our podcast. Dave Besson from Southampton in the UK messaged us to say he loved the Nick Gulab episode. What a humble and down-to-earth chap. Left me wondering what he really is capable of if he had access to funding and the ability to train differently. Equally, that sort of environment might not bring out the best in him. Fascinating. Another comment we had was from Nick Dunn, also regarding Nick's episode. He said, superb interview and podcast. Such an inspiring and modest athlete. Well done to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast for crafting such an interesting discussion. Guys, we love your messages. Keep them coming. Now let's crack on with the show. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not ready or you're not fast enough or you can't do it, even when it's yourself. That fantastic quote from David Torrance is on the footer of our guest's email today. And it's, it's an incredible quote and definitely something to bear in mind when we talk about our show today. So guys, welcome again to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast, where we delve into the minds of athletes, coaches, and industry experts to try and find out the secrets to their success. I'm Ian Deef, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Johnny Tiu. Johnny, how's it going? And what have we got going on this week? Absolutely awesome. In our previous episode, we've kicked off our 5K performance series with Nick Gulab, who ran a 13.27 on a road 5K and broke the British national record at the time. This was the same race that Cheptegai from Uganda broke the 5K world record. We started this mini-series of, of episodes to help you, our listeners, to learn more about the specifics that goes into this distance, the strategy, the mindset, to hopefully motivate all of you to go out there and crush your 5K personal best. We chose the 5K distance because it's a race distance that is easily accessible to everyone and has really risen in popularity due to the minimal commitment, time, and especially with the growth of organized events such as the Park Run, which is a weekly free running event that takes place every Saturday in many locations around the world. We realize that some of our runners have a natural endurance background, whereas others are more power-based or fast-twitched in nature. Our guest today started life as a sprinter, running some pretty impressive times before moving up to longer race distances and continued to produce some outstanding stats and represent Britain at the World Indoor Championships. Yeah, he took a similar path to myself, starting off sprinting. But when he entered the endurance realm, he far surpassed me. This guy absolutely blew my times out of the water. So as a sprinter, let's give you some stats. He clocked 21.8 for the 200, and he was a regular 47-point runner as a 400-meter man before stepping up to the 800, where he ran a 146.6. And also he was a British champion over that distance, the 800 meters, but stepped up the distance again to represent Great Britain at the World Indoor Championships in Doha in 2010, over the 1500 meters. But our guest today seems to be good at every single distance. He's clocked a 358 mile, 
and he's got a 5K personal best of 13.59. He's a two-time All-American, a two-time MAAC champion. And then after he hung up his spikes, he coached in the US both the track and as we recently found out, basketball. He's now working as a sports psychologist in California and will complete his doctorate in the next year. We welcome to the pod, Tim Bailey. Tim, awesome to have you with us, buddy. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Excited to be here. Welcome, welcome. Now, there's a bit of a personal backstory as well. So Tim used to be a training partner of mine back in London many, many years ago, almost 20 years ago now. And uh, we haven't seen each other for maybe 15 years, uh, which is a long, long time. So Good Lord, it's yeah, been a while. <laughs> it's been a while, so there's going to be plenty to catch up on here. Tim, we've got to start off talking about this phenomenal range. Some people have said to me, you know, I, I've managed to do all right with my 5K, clocking like a 16-minute a 45K, but, you know, your stats are absolutely unbelievable. I don't know anybody that's got such incredible range. Where, where did you kind of find your initial talent for running? Did you always start as a runner? Or were you playing other sports and that gradually kind of moved into into running? Yeah, I mean, it really didn't start off with running as, as anything of a focus. Um, when I was a kid from about nine years old, I played cricket, got to play cricket at a pretty high level. I was on the Sussex, um, the Sussex County under 11s team, took that all the way through to under 17s. At the same time, I was playing soccer, football, whichever we, we want to say, depending on which country we're in here. <laughs> But I played, I was, I was a centre half or, or right back and kind of played on my, my school team, representative like Sussex Rep and then Brighton Boys, which is like the local Brighton Hove schools kind of rep team. And I always knew I was quick. So I'd run the, the Brighton schools, the, the Brighton Hove kind of schools, athletics championships. And I'd routinely win the 100 in about anywhere from kind of started off about, I think about 12 flat and then got down to about 11.6, maybe 11.5. I think I won it in my last year in high school. You know, so I knew I had speed and I had a lot of speed on the on the football field. But I think maybe a bit of a, an aha moment for me when I was on the Sussex under 16s team, we um, we did a whole battery of fitness testing. It was kind of like the, the stretch and reach, touch your toes kind of old school test. You had, um, yeah. you had one of the tests on there was the bleep test, the, the multi-stage fitness test if other people kind of know it differently. Kind of went into that, and it was all of the different age groups. The professional teams, the Sussex A and B team, or first and second eleven, were had done it like the previous week. I just went into that test, and I just everyone dropped out as the beeps are getting closer and closer together, and I just kept going. And I think I was about three, maybe four levels above everyone else when I finally dropped out. What I ended up hitting in terms of the level, I forget what level I hit. It was maybe fifteen something. I ended up surpassing what all of the professional, all of the 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 main kind of Sussex players on the professional kind of roster had, had done. It was kind of, I remember my parents saying, you could probably be quite good in middle distance. But <laughs> I knew I had this speed on the football field, but then, you know, I then just kind of exhibited this really good endurance without really doing any specific work. And so that was kind of like an aha moment for me. The stretch and reach was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so was it at that point you kind of started to feel like you might specialise then joined your local running club. Was that the next move? Next move was I was finishing up high school. So I went to Lewis Tertiary College for and did and they had a, an athletics development course. And that was being headed up by a guy called Mark Rowlands, who and he was just kind of I think he was maybe a couple of years into coaching. Mark Rowlands was a um he was a bronze medalist in the steeplechase back in the Seoul Olympics. Nineteen eighty eight. So 1988 Olympics. And so he was just kind of getting into coaching. I think he'd maybe been doing it a year or two. And it was 
him and, a, and another chap, Mark Gregory, who coached Sean Baldock, who you and I were teammates with, DP, who was, who was like a yep. Sydney Olympian, 45-2 for the 400. Yep. Great guy. And so anyway, I kind of found this course as I went down. I did sports science kind of path, BTEC National Diploma. I met Mark Rowlands there and Mark Gregory. And um, I remember having this just amazing conversation with Mark Rowlands just randomly out of, out of nowhere. I just kind of went into his office to ask a little advice as I was kind of going into this course. And maybe I caught him at a good time, but we, he just talked and talked and talked with me for about 45 minutes. Most of this stuff's going over my head, but I got really excited. And my big takeaway was if you work your ass off and are really disciplined and committed and, you, uh, and you've got a will to win, you can do anything in the sport. And that was my big takeaway from this conversation. I probably, you know, all the other stuff's going over my head, but it was like, wow, this is really cool. I'm going to really start to dig in on this and start to kind of really, really train hard. That's a pretty awesome takeaway. It was great. And Mark Rowlands, I mean, for anyone listening, Mark Rowlands is the head coach of Oregon Track Club now. And he's coached multiple, um, you know, Olympians, coached a guy called Nick Simmons, who took the silver in the 800 meters at the uh, World Championships a couple of years back, about four four or five years back now. So he works with just phenomenal athletes. He's really ascended the ladder in coaching to like the pinnacle. And so I was incredibly lucky to get exposure to a guy like that, just be able to get inspired by him like that. And so that kind of really got me going and got me kind of wanting to ramp up on the training. So I was kind of doing that simultaneously, still kind of playing cricket, playing playing my football still, but recognizing that like wasn't skillful enough in football really to do to make any real kind of impact was burning out rapidly on the cricket. With the cricket, actually, funnily enough, I played with a guy called Matt Pryor, who went on to be the England wicketkeeper for a number of years. And it was just interesting, just the difference, the passion gap. He was so into it and so driven, and he would just do absolutely whatever it took day in, day out, and that just it just wasn't for me. found that in the running. As soon as I started training for that, it was just ignited something in me. It was so exciting to push hard like that. Yeah, Tim, it's interesting. Like With many of our guests, almost we find, as soon as they find their passion, that seems to be the foundation for everything else that's to come. And, and that's basically the key at the start, yeah. trying lots of different things. And eventually you do find that passion and then you're not afraid to put in the hard work or go to whatever extent it takes to, to push and find your potential, right? Yeah. There's a book called um, The Talent Code by a guy called, uh, I think it's Dan Coyle. Um, yep, I've read it. I reference it a lot in my in my work, in my, in my doctorate, because it's just such a great, it's such a great book. You know, he talks about the ignition moment where we just have this like that the aha moment ignition moment whatever you want to call it he calls it ignition and it's like i could really relate with that you know as we talk about this right now just thinking back to those those moments where it was like yeah you know and and something just turns on inside you this um maybe this this flame this like light bulb or something you're like this is what i want to do this is this is happening you know often hear athletes think of a moment that they've maybe watched on tv that's inspired them to try a sport was it literally that bleep test where that was the the inspirational moment or was there actually an athlete that's inspired you on tv or an athletic moment that inspired you i remember thinking back with real vivid memories thinking back to linford christie barcelona olympics that was like my first kind of real memory kind of significant kind of memory of the olympics of linford and uh of sally gunnell a little bit there as well who, you know, funnily enough, I went on and got coached for a number of years by her husband, John Big. And so those were, I I remember seeing seeing them and I remember thinking Jamie Bolsh seemed really cool, you know, and you and Thomas, you know, going at it in the 400 and they were like just, they'd get interviewed afterwards and were just really, you could just tell they were like really into it, really passionate about it. And I remember thinking that was really cool. And and so 
I think it was really the, the coming together of it all of what I wanted to do was rolling up at Lewis Tertiary College and then talking with Mark Rowlands and just seeing, you know, this this training group and feeling like this is where I belong. This is what I should be doing, you know, particularly after that conversation. Yeah. So you've kind of found this passion. Uh, you've realized that maybe initially that your your talent lies in the kind of maybe middle distance field after completing a bleep test, but you initially go to the sprints specializing, I'd say more in the 400, but delving a little bit occasionally into the twos as well. How come you didn't go straight into kind of the middle distance? What what took your fancy in the sprints? Um, I guess Mark Mark Gregory, the other coach there, real, real great guy. He was coaching Sean Baldock at the time. And I remember back, I, I had no concept really of times. And I went to Withdean Stadium, our local Brighton track, where, where Brighton and Albion actually used to play for a while when we were around displacement. I went went with a couple of friends who were on the course and I ran a 800 there or what I thought was felt was all out in um, just clumpy some clumpy Nike running shoes and I ran 212 and I was quite excited my one of my friends thought that was seemed to think that was that was really good so I, I went next day to Mark Gregory and I was like I just uh, Mark I, I ran an 800 time trial yesterday and he's like oh, oh all right what do you run because he didn't think I was that committed because you know I was still doing my soccer I was still doing my my cricket I was like around 2.12 and he was like, that's rubbish, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> ouch. Oh, okay. He said, but there's a race coming up on Wednesday if you want to run it and you want to run, see what you can really do. And it was like a local, it was a race up at Crawley, kind of, you know, 45 minutes up the, up the road. Yep. And I was like, kind of, screw you. Yeah, I'll do it. So I show up to this race and I was in the B section. And I ran the eight and I think I had spikes on for this one. I, my memory's a bit hazy. I can't remember, but I just went out from the front and I was like, I think I was probably something around 59, 60 through four and, and ran 204. And he was like, all right, that's, that's better. You know, kind of afterwards, he was there at the meet. You can run in the, the Sussex championships, the county championships, which is maybe like a week later. Yep. I went there and it was just a straight final, if I remember right. And um, I remember just coming through the field from a little further back and running like ran 158. It was like for him, he kind of took more of an interest in me at that point. Mark Rowlands was kind of like, you know, he didn't show any real overt in, interest in kind of coaching me or anything. And so Mark Gregory took a more kind of active interest in me at that point. Then I kind of hurt my Achilles a bit after training, sorry, my knee rather for a bit after training a bit more intensively. And then I kind of came back towards the end of that, right in maybe mid-August or something, after going away and just letting the knee just recover. I was off drinking and messing around for a while down in Newquay came back and just ran a 400 again at with Dean and in, in like right at the end of the season around 51 eight and um was like all right I could maybe you know and he was he was quite excited about it he encouraged me to train for the four I saw Sean was there and I got to chat with him and I was like I, I can do this so I was off out the Hastings quite regularly in, in Eastbourne training with um with that group for the next couple of years Awesome. So you kind of almost put the feelers out a little bit, starting off with the distance that eventually maybe you would consider was your ideal race distance. We can get to that later. Yeah. And then experimenting with a four, which which is great. Coming into the sport at 18, a lot of people maybe nowadays, they get to try like the throws, the jumps, all the different distances. But you came in a little bit differently from like trying a variety of sports, realized there was a bit of a talent for the middle distance there and then kind of dropped down to a four because a 51 point for your opening 400 is pretty damn good going as is a 158 on your third 800 as well it's showing some some good distance later on so in terms of finding that ideal race distance would you agree that that was the the 800 meters for you because obviously you've got this incredible range 
Um, and you represented GB at the 1500 at the World Indoor Champs Doha 2010. And a 358 mile is hugely impressive as well as is a sub 40 minute 5K. Is, is the eight where you really feel your, your talent lied or where do you feel was your ideal race distance? It's tough to say because I think, you know, with talent potential, it's such a loaded term, right? And it's such a, it's something that's not, you can't really entirely put your finger on, right? And so I, I will say this right now is that the eight, as I reflect back, like the 800, I absolutely just love the 800. I love the 800 more than the four, more than 15. It's just, that's my, that's the event that just kind of does it for me. What about the 800? What was it about that event? You know, if you're trying to really get after it and you're really trying to roll, it's this perfect distance because you're in lanes, you break after the 100 and you're in lanes with your competitors, but you're just rolling. You're going so hard if you're in like a, you know, a, a good, a real good quality race. And it's just something about that, you know, this feel of it kind of being like this extended sprint that you just feel the competition around you because you're in lane, in that same lane or shared couple of lanes there with, with your competition. And, you know, the 400, you're a bit more isolated. And so you don't quite feel the competition quite the same way. There's some, there's just this intensity about the eight that it's just so, it's just something about it that just really does it for me. Yeah, I, I've got a similar vibe with the indoor 400 because I used to love the break at, at 200 and it was a yeah. kind of battle. It was almost two races. It was get to the 200 meter mark. So you're in a good position to break. So you had to go hard for that. And then you were in the mix and just that cutting where everybody was just trying to get that front because you know if you if you weren't in the lead at 200 it was a hell of a task to kind of get round the corner to get in front of the next person because of the tightness of the bending doors but definitely can relate to you there in the 800 so that was your favorite event that was kind of your ideal race distance yeah that's amazing experiences though with the four and with the 15 though where and, and mile where just a concept in sports like uh flow state the zone yeah. whatever you want to call it find myself into that at both the 15 and the four as well and and those times where I kind of came into this this incredible state and ran really fast and just almost like effortlessly it was an amazing experience at both those two distances as well so I mean so much of it's about you know what kind of state you can get into and you know I think I probably just had more a higher volume of really good performances as well at the eight than I did at the four and the 15 but really enjoyed those two events as well. Yeah, with the step up of training from the two to the four to the eight to the 15, were you kind of training specifically like, say, for the 800? And then if a four or two was coming up, you were adding more speed sessions. And then when the 1500 was going up, you were adding kind of more mileage or more specific 1500 sessions. Or how, how did that work? I guess when I moved up to the 800 properly, a couple of years, I'd run, I'd split 46.3, ran 47.5. And then the next year, I, I kind of got a bit stagnant, really. That was the year that we became friends. This wasn't as this didn't wasn't able to run as fast. I think I gained a little weight. I got a little. I definitely got a little heavy for it. Just to let the listeners know, that wasn't my fault. I wasn't <laughs> taking them out for meals and taking them on, on drinks all the time. That was nothing to do with me. Lifestyle and stuff. I just I just didn't have quite enough guidance with kind of you know nutrition and stuff like that either at that time. And so you know I kind of stagnated a little bit around forty seven seven that year and then forty six eight relay. So just kind of went moved backwards just a time just a hair kind of recognized it was time to move up to the you know to the 800 at that at that point I'd kind of run one 800 at that that year and a 154 and oh my lord the last 150 was just agony absolute agony and so um it, it's a hard one to move up to I think from the four to step up to the 200 is quite easy to step down to but obviously you're lacking maybe a little bit of that raw speed and power that the true sprinters have 
But to, to step up to the eight, I mean, it's that's a whole different beast. I mean, I remember that particular race there. It was I think it must have, I think it was a British League meet, and um, I was out in fifty four leading, and then just got rolled up by the proper eight hundred guys, about two hundred to go, and just was flailing my way in. It's such a specific kind of speed endurance. When I moved up to the 800 properly, I would kind of have that one up, one down. I'd, I'd try and drop down and run. You know, I could split 47 mid pretty routinely over the four. But then I could also bump up and run a decent 15. I could run, I could was able to get under 350 for the 15. I think around 348 before I went out to the States and, and ran out there. Were you moving away from track sessions and starting to include longer running, build more of an aerobic foundation as you, as you stepped up the distance as well? Yeah. So I moved over from Mark Gregory to get coached by John Big. It was kind of interesting time, actually, because Steve Cram had put an article out in, uh, this must be around 03, around there. Steve Cram had put an, an article out in Athletics Weekly magazine, basically calling out 400 meter runners to move, move up to the 800 because there was just this real kind of black hole there with the 800, the fastest guy. And this is not to discredit any of the guys running that year because we only can do what we can do, right? And I think Spatey was the Neil, guy, Neil Spate was the top guy in the country at the time running 147.1, 147.2, which is an excellent time, really excellent time. But it's not where, if you look at the standard of the 800 right now in Britain, I mean, the 8 and the 15, we're like a golden era right now again. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, you've got guys just routinely running 144, you know, slew of guys at 145 and 146. Back then, that wasn't the case, you know, like the top guy was 147. It was interesting because um, Cram put this article out there and I was like, that's me. I need to move up. (laughs) I just read it and I was like, that needs to be me. And I remember approaching him at British Indoor Championships that year. I was there for the 400, kind of accosting him at breakfast and saying uh, and, and, and introducing myself and just asking if he would help me. And I said, I really, I read your article, I really want to move up and go after it. And uh, he guided me to work with work with John Big, and he helped to you know mentor and guide me a bit for about a year or two. And has always been a, a you know mentor to me over the years. You know, we keep, keep in touch kind of very loosely now. But John Big, yeah, was was incredible for me. And so he's married to. Um, Sally Gunnell, who uh, won the Barcelona Olympics, was the uh, was the world record holder in the 400 hurdles back then. 52-72, I think, was a world yeah. record, which is absolutely mind-blowingly fast. So when I when I, I started working with him, that was when I truly moved up to the eight and started to kind of move away from you know particularly in the winter, you know the you know the fall kind of autumn kind of base phase and a lot more kind of endurance work, one k's on a on a course, you know grass course, hills, that kind of stuff. And I guess, you know, the focus I know for this series of episodes we're doing at the moment is the 5K. If you were to say to any sprinters out there who have run like 21 point for 200 meters, they could run a sub 14 minute 5K. <laughs> Nobody would believe it. They'd say, you can't, you can't be a sprinter and go sub 14 minutes for the 5K. It's just not possible. When you moved up to that distance, was that off the 800 meter training, the 1500 meter training, or did you specifically then start training for the 5K? Well, when I ran that 5K, I ran a 5K. So this was fall of 2007. I ran my first ever 5K. I ran in, it was called the San Jose Turkey Trot uh, on Thanksgiving up in the Bay Area. And it's kind of routinely is the fastest 5K road race in the world each year or has been in the past. It will get one in anything from, you know, the 1320s to 1340. I ran a 5K there. I was getting coached by a, a chap, Tom McGlynn, out in the out in the Bay Area. And my wife, I'd just moved over there from New York, from 
finishing up Iona College and he was the kind of coming, he was a, a product of coaching with the Nike, what's called the Nike Farm Team, which is now moved up to Eugene, is now Oregon Track Club. And so he was coaching under Frank Gagliano, Coach Gags there. Kind of quite Jack Daniels based. There was a lot of endurance in my training. And so I ran a, we just went to test where I was at and I ran a 5K in this road race and I ran 14.20. Felt God awful afterwards. Oh my God, that was, that was a grind. But it kind of gave me an indication that there was a hell of a lot more there with the 5K. But the focus and the emphasis for the, the trials, the, the, the Olympic trials in 2008 was going to be kind of probably the 15, but potentially the 8 as well. But it was a good affirmation that my strength, my aerobic capacity and, and everything, my VO2 max had really come on even more from college. Kind of fast forward, went, did an indoor season and then came out of that and I ran at the Stanford Invitational in the B section of the 5K to open up my outdoor season. I had no clue really what I was doing. You know, I was such a novice, you know, kind of running a 5K. It was like, let's just come dip your toes in the water, go go get get after it and see what we can do, start the season. And it was quite funny because it was a field of like 30 people. I went out nice and easy and I'd always kind of get out hard typically in races. I went out nice, what felt like nice and easy and I found myself in like third place. I'm kind of clicking along and I'm like, maybe I'm a little too far up the field here. A couple of guys passed me, a couple more guys passed me and I'm kind of just chilling, not really worrying too much. Suddenly, I've got my coach there, Tom, on the inside on, on the inside of track at about maybe six, seven hundred meters into the race, and he's screaming at me. He's like, "Tim, what in the world are you doing?" I'm like, back in um, third from last, <laughs> so I'm right towards the back of the train. And then I had this huge kind of kick up the ass and this sense of urgency, like, "Okay, I got to move up now." And then I start coming wide and passing people slowly, just passing people, passing people through the race. And I remember getting to twelve hundred meters to go. And thinking, oh my God, how am I going to finish this thing? My legs were just flooded. Felt just, they felt like they were just, just flooding with lactate. I couldn't catch my breath. Oh my God. And I was continuing to try and move up, move up, move up. I was probably back in about 13th, 14th by this point. And then, you know, you just keep grinding, right? And then suddenly before I knew it, you know, my legs and everything's just stinging. And I find myself at the bell, hearing the bell. And I was in about fifth, I think, at that point. It was almost like an out-of-body experience, an incredibly uncomfortable out-of-body experience at this point where I knew my limbs were turning over fast and I was trying to close the last 400, but I couldn't feel them. I was just numb, numb in my lungs as well. It was bizarre. And I remember just kind of closing, 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 coming third, lunging through the line, arguably the most painful experience of my running career. I'll go back on that. Actually, was the most painful experience. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds it. But I broke fourteen somehow. Yeah, I closed in a fifty-nine high for the last four hundred, which is just bizarre because I couldn't feel anything. So it was like, you know, kind of reflecting back, I'm like, did that just happen? Like, how did I manage to run under sixty for my last, you know, sub four minute pace for my last lap with that kind of just not even been able to feel my legs properly. I guess there were not many people in that field who've run a, a 46 point relay split. So probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that might have helped. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. It was, I mean, God, the, the next, um, this is not to put people off in the 5k or anything. It's a very real, a very, you feel very alive in many ways. Right. But the next 45 minutes, I, I mean, I, it took me a long time after that race to kind of clear, you know, I'm jogging around and I still felt just dreadful for, you know, at least half an hour afterwards, couldn't really talk with people properly. And then did you go back to the 200 meters after that? You were like, right. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'll I'll do it. I'm, I'm done with this long distance stuff. I'm back down <laughs> to throwback. That was the only 5K I ever ran on the track. 
I didn't run it one again at any point. Wow. And maybe a, a part of that was how much I've, I've always just loved the 800. And then, you know, just, and then I went through a, a phase where I was just transfixed on trying to break four minutes for the mile. I didn't really think too much on the mile when I was back in, in England. Then you kind of, the mark, the because the mile's not really run there, which is kind of ironic when you think that Bannister was the first sub four runner back in 54. You don't really run it that often. You have the MC Carl uh, mile at the Crystal Palace Grand Prix. I think there's maybe one other mile. But it's just not really a thing. It's more than 1,500. And, and the mile is really an indoor event, collegiately, particularly in the U.S., yeah, it's a big deal. It's, it's interesting with the Roger Bannister thing. You would think that it would have a bit more of a historical context and more popularly run in the UK, but it's not the case, right? You've got the 1500, you've got the mile, and you have the 1600 out here in the States, which high schoolers run. And so it's this whole mess with what does this mean and what's the context? So with Charlie Grice, who we, we're good friends with, you know, I, we, and we're really proud of with everything that he's been able to accomplish. I've known him since he was 15 years old and he was just coming into you know, getting coached by John Big and just start really fully starting out in the sport. For him to, you know, be, you know, Olympic finalist in Rio was incredible. And and but I remember kind of mentioning that to people who were who were involved in sport in other sports here in the States. And you can't even say the fifteen hundred. You have to say the mile because they don't understand. It's a lot of confusion that gets created. You know, the mile's sixteen hundred and nine meters. But most people don't realize that. They think it's just four laps. And then in high school, the high school kids run run the sixteen hundred meters. So they don't run a full mile. And then you have in, in Europe and then over in the US as well, at their trials, you have the 1500. So it creates this whole mess. And it's like, I wish it could be a little bit more linear sometimes just from a marketing standpoint, if nothing else, to allow people to kind of really get into and understand, you know, the, the sport more and, and relate, connect a little bit more of it. Yeah, it'd definitely be better if there was just one universal distance because they are so close to 1500, 1600 a mile. Yeah, it goes back the metric system right and and having us in us using a different system and i'm guilty of it where when people told me a mile like, yeah four laps nope it's 1609 there's also that little bit <laughs> knocked in the track yeah and it's it's an interesting one right when i when i coach i coach a few soccer kids and stuff now for uh kind of quasi you know some sports site integrated in with with all the physical saq like speed agility quickness kind of work that that they require and need to do. And one of the things we do just from a, a, a baseline fitness is we'll run a, we'll run a mile, but I always have them run at the true mile. I like to kind of educate them a little bit on that. One step at a time, small changes for people to understand <laughs> the differences, right? <laughs> so Tim, uh, with all these awesome, awesome, different achievements you've had, which would you say is the one you're most proud of? First of all, I guess I wouldn't say, I feel like I was good, but never great in anything. I feel like I was really solid in a lot of different events, you know, 1359 on the grand scheme of things, it's like, it's, it's good, but nowhere near, you know, being at a, a level to go to the Olympics, right? The closest one, I guess, with, with being there close enough to almost touch that little top level was the 800. And I think, you know, from an experience standpoint, that was my, you call it junior year. So my first of my two years at Iona College when I ran the 146.64. And it was an incredible time for me. That whole year was incredible. It was like I just couldn't do wrong. I just ran personal best, personal record, whatever you want to call it, after personal record the whole season. It was like I opened up indoors and was second in a, in a mile in 405. Then I ran a third in the world time at the time of 221 for the 1K and took second. Then I ran four flat for the mile. It was like I could just do no wrong that year. It was bizarre, but I just entered this incredible state you have three championships in a row if you're in the Northeast competing. Um, you have 
the IC4A championships, then you have the regionals, and then you progress on through to the NCAA championships. For me, this amazing kind of little period of time, which you just wish you, I just wish I could just bottle up and recreate, and that's kind of something that just intrigues me so much in my sports site work, which is a whole other subject. But I ran um, 150 flat to win my prelim at the IC4As. This was down in Princeton, down in, in New Jersey. Felt great. And then in the final, guy took off really hard, real real great competitor called Joel Legary, and it's extremely sad, actually. He, he died, sadly died last year. He took off, though, and, and I, I managed to run him down, down the home straight and catch him and, and get the win in, in 148.29, which was a personal best for me. And it was the start of me kind of going into this supreme feeling of confidence in myself. For me, it felt like a significant shift. So I went to regionals. It was winner plus times to go through. It was real nice warm weather on a Mondo track down in um, North Carolina. I followed this guy, Paul, Paul Harris, through the 400. In, in, he came through in about 52-1, maybe 52-2. And I just felt incredible. And I couldn't even – it was almost like it was like just complete flow state. I just took off at 400, passed him and took the lead, felt him clipping at my heels still at, at, at six, and I was about 118 through six. And then no longer he, – he wasn't clipping at my heels anymore, and I'm coming down the home straight, checking over my shoulder a couple of times because it was a prelim. And I ran 147.52. And it was kind of like almost out of nowhere. It felt effortless. It was a really bizarre feeling. I remember being like, seeing my coach and being like, what happened there? You know? And, it, <laughs> and then in the final, I just had this supreme confidence where it was like, I can win this race any which way. I took off at 300 to go and ran, won, the, won the final in 148.8. Just felt amazing. And then I just kind of, this momentum, this amazing momentum just carried into nationals and found myself leading in the prelim there at nationals kind of bundled into the lead out in 55 threw the hammer down and I got passed down the home straight by a, a guy who's now running still running incredible times now Lopez Lamont yep, yep. And he uh, he came past me and he he won it and, we, and I was just in this amazing place where it was just I was willing to take risks just completely just leaning into you know taking risks and running running almost recklessly and I'm remembering right, Dwayne Solomon was in my semi-final and, and Dwayne went on to do some amazing stuff. He's probably, I think he's number three all-time US now. He was fourth in the London Olympics in the 800. Yep. Terrific guy and he was a real hard, like after college, he was a real hard front runner and he'd get out in like 49. He was just incredible, just throw down. But I remember him being kind of in the mix though, second or something, it's kind of a blur, but we came through in 51 and I was trying to take the lead and get around, which was, <laughs> 51's rolling and I'm like, couldn't couldn't get quite bundled my way into the lead, and then at five hundred, I took the lead, and then it was like, oh god, got swallowed up fifty meters later by the by everyone as they, as they started trying to close, and then I just remember not panicking, and then just coming out into like lane four to come through into second. So came went from like fell back into six, came back through into second, and ran one forty seven four to qualify into the final. Winning the British Trials the year before was very special experience for me up in Manchester and my sister was there watching and that was an incredible experience for me but just from a pure performance standpoint that final that on that Saturday that it was just pure effortless effort it was felt so easy we you know we came through in I think the leader my friend Prince Mumba was coming through in 50 point and I was in about fifth just tucked in on the rail just cruising in 51 and then I remember just this feeling, this weird feeling. Everyone's just ramping up at, at um, 300 meters to go at the 500 meter mark. Everyone starts, you can feel everyone's starting to really kind of get antsy and go. And I remember just 
squeezing squeezing down on the gas with it like it was just effortless. And then at 150 to go, kicking and realizing that there was someone right next to me in my way as people were kind of starting, a couple of guys were starting to slow in front of me and just launching my elbows out, like, out of my way, I've got to go here and moving out. And I remember hearing, I still remember this to this day, hearing my, my coach, Mick Byrne, this, uh, this, this Irish guy, and he, he's like, you got this, Tim. And I picked his voice out somehow from in the crowd there and just was just like, hold your form and close. And I got passed by this, 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 great, this guy, Brian Brown, came through and he won it in like 146.2. I knew he, part, he passed me maybe 30, 40 meters to go. I, I didn't panic. I was like, you're in your top gear right now. Just, just hold your form and close. And it was like, you know, it was like somehow I was like on this subconscious level, just okay with it because I knew that I was maxed out. I had nothing more to give. So I would have just tensed. And I finished and I saw the scoreboard and it was like, one, you know, second 146. And I was like, oh my God, I ran 146. Wow. I mean, it just sounds like not just like one specific achievement. It just sounds like that entire time frame was like very significant and like also inspiring for you. So like, like you said, I think, I think it's more important like to snap that one achievement it's that overall experience that timeline that really defines you and allowed you to find where you are to become that athlete that you're meant to be right it fully characterizes what's been kind of you know researched and called the flow state i was absolutely in that and achieving a peak performance definitely for me simultaneously but i just was in this like you know almost could call it like top bulletproof at the time it's my general confidence everything i actually met my wife priscilla that night going out <laughs> so that's really a defining time frame for you around that <laughs> incredible yeah i went out to the up uh, in this after party and it was just just had this supreme confidence i remember like her and i making eye contact uh, across this bar a monkey bar there in sacramento and it was almost like i had time distortion there where, where her and i you know we made eye contact and it was like this like wow oh my god kind of moment and then we got talking and found we had everything in common and then here we are fast forward and we have a little two and a half year old boy and we're 14 years later. <laughs> so amazing, you know. I was going to say, Tim, it's almost like you had good results throughout the years. And, and this kind of year, you, you had that one result, you know, that first race, which you won, I think you said, in a, a 148. It was a time you'd kind of already run, but it wasn't the time. It was the confidence that gave you. Mm. And that was kind of almost the significant moment where all these years of hard work, all of these fast times, everything had just come together. And it was like, bang. I can do this. And it was almost like the, you, we call it self-efficacy theory, right? You know, yeah. you started to believe you could do it and, and that just carried on. And regardless of what was going on in the race, it was the belief because you'd done it before from that point that carried you through as a sports psychologist. Was that, is that kind of how you maybe summarize it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent, the self-efficacy was, was huge. And then I found, I stumbled into, and I say stumbled, you know, I, I didn't really do any extensive work with any sports psychology consultant or anything you know over the, the previous years i just kind of dabbled with it a tiny bit with a couple of people where they gave me a few bits to work on here and there but i kind of stumbled into this space i think it was a combination of training well i was i was really enjoying my time there in new york it was just strange it was like everything just kind of felt like it it, it really clicked for me and it's interesting you know with looking at flow state like the the, the research of chicks in Mahaya who pioneered flow state and contrasting a pure flow state for me and, and and what that characterized and those feelings and thoughts and everything. And it was just this supreme confidence and just completely relaxed, effortless effort kind of feeling with everything. I contrasted that with 2004 3A's Olympic trials in Manchester, where I just totally punked out in that race in the final. I scraped through into the final. I was so nervous. And 
was not put together at all with what I was doing, my mental processes. It was like I didn't want to be there. I just wanted the race to be over there in that, in that race. And it was a horrible experience for me personally, you know, in terms of just having real crippling performance anxiety. And so it's interesting for me to contrast those two extremely different experiences. I think I would put the thing, my finger down on like self-efficacy and general kind of self-confidence, self-esteem was, was a big marker of what helped me to kind of have this amazing performance for me in, in 2006 at the at that NCAAs. Nice. Yeah, so just shifting years, I guess, a little bit. With all that achievement, I think we got to go to the reverse side. Was there any setbacks or disappointment? Yeah, I think 2004 was a real disappointing one for me that was the year that i missed a, i missed a big opportunity that year i think you know you had mike east was running really fast over the 15 and he kind of dabbled with the eight a little bit and he actually ran the eight at the trials james mcelroy who was a real top guy around there and 144 guy he wasn't he wasn't running what he had been previous couple of years it was a really wide open trials i couldn't break 149 for the life of me that year i think i ran 149 like 10 times the more around 149, the more frustrated I get because I just felt that I worked hard and that I should be able to kind of transition into the 147s and there, and I was stuck at 149. That trial, Sam Ellis, he won that trial. He was, we, we were about the same age and he just came through and just ran a just a phenomenal race in that final and came through to win it. I remember kind of seeing Sam celebrating and, and on, you know, being really mad because I, you know, I really liked, liked him as a, as a person, but I was just like, why did I not do that? How did I manage to just completely just feel this crippling performance anxiety and, and completely punk out and implode in this race? I came in seventh in the end. I remember in that moment there seeing kind of Sam being interviewed after the race, kind of back in the warm down, you know, the warm up arena. This is not happening again. Next year I'm I'm coming back and this is going to be a different story. I'm gonna, I'm getting it together. Something wasn't right this here for me. And I'm gonna put it right. I'm gonna get it right. I just redoubled down. I was in my last year of Brighton Uni, finishing my sports science degree, and I made this commitment. And this was actually where I worked with a sports psychology consultant there who was extremely helpful. He helped me to break down and look at my lifestyle. I was trying to do too many things around that time. I was, and this is, I think, really important advice for any, any aspiring runners, whether it be 5K, 100 meters, whatever it is you're working towards, Spartan race, you know, like you guys, you know, whatever you're doing, right? If you try and do too many things, everything becomes very mediocre. And so for me in that year that I was working 15 hours a week in a Tesco Express, trying to earn a little money. I was commuting back and forth from Eastbourne, which is about a 45 minute commute. I was living at home. I was trying to train full time and, you know, double days and all of what entails, you know, trying to really get after it with the 800, you know, three strength conditioning workouts a week. And then I'm trying to study full time in a, in a pretty rigorous sports science program. Then you put on top of that, I was trying to have a social life and I was probably going out and having a few more drinks and stuff than I probably should have been and, and enjoying the, you know, the student kind of lifestyle too much with my peers who weren't runners and they didn't, they weren't doing that. They were, you know, that their main thing was just to be there and study. And he re helped me recognize this, you know, and he pointed out to me, and I think this is so important, is like, you can do two things really, really well. What do you want to do? What are those two things going to be? You can excel at two things. I really took that to heart. I throttled back. I was maybe doing one shift a week thereafter at Tesco Express, you know, just to bring in a tiny little bit of extra money. Stopped going out, really, for the most part. I had an occasional night out here and there, probably once a month. And I just locked in on my studies to get my grades up more to get out to the States. So I locked in on my studies and I locked in on my running. And that next year, I wasn't even running that well in the season, but I just, I, I knew I'd put the work in and I knew I'd live the right lifestyle and, and things 
I remember going into that British trials, the World Champ and Commonwealth Games trials. I was, I think I was ranked 16th going in. I'd run one, I think my best time at the time was 149.7. But something felt different for me there. And I think it was the commitment and the, you know, the confidence that I brought up, built up in the, in terms of my level of commitment that I doubled down and, and put in. Went in with no real expectations, you know, other than just that I was going to go, go and try and execute. So I remember talking to John Big, my coach, and saying, John, what's the plan here? You know, no, no real expectations. I hadn't even really told my friends to try and even bother tuning in to it because I didn't even know if I'd met the final. I just wanted to just kind of get after it and see. He's like, I want you to get out on the leader's shoulder, stand on the leader's shoulder, see if you can outkick him at 150 to go. Really simple. So, okay, John. So I go out and I delivered exactly that. Leader shoulder, 150 to go kicked, won my heat. For the final, it was like, what do you want me to do here, John? Exactly the same thing as the heat. Get out, get on the leader's shoulder, stand on the leader's shoulder, try and outkick him. And it was Michael Rimmer who went on to do some, he was really young at the time, went on to do some really great stuff. He let it out in like 54, got on his shoulder, stayed on his shoulder, or passed him probably about 100 to go. But I started making a move at 150 to go and having this like, oh my God, what is going on here? About 40 meters to go, where I was like, I'm actually going to win this thing <laughs> and, winning the, and, and winning the race. It was so cool because it was this culmination of all of this, this dedication that I kind of put in of, of this is what I do. I, I study and I run. Either I was rewarded for that, you know. So not only were those through some of the setbacks, you actually had that plan to bounce back and come back even stronger. Yeah. You mentioned that you spoke with your psychologist. Is that one of the reasons why it took you down the track that it did? And I guess also the follow-up question would be, how did you make that transition from competing and when was the right time for you to switch over to coaching and, and taking the path that you did? In 2006 indoor season, at my first of, of two years at Iona College, I ran 4.05 for the mile in my first race, ran a 1K, and then I came back and uh, my teammate, Richard Kitlagat, this awesome Kenyan guy, paced me through 1,200. I ran 4 minutes zero zero point five six. And it was in New York. It was at the Armory. It was it was yep. um, really intense indoors. Indoors, so intense. It's so much fun. That's always an iconic spot. I remember a couple times I ran there, just like burning lungs and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. You got Armory, Armory cough. We call it. <laughs> and we get interviewed afterwards on the over the microphone over the, the sound system there, and saying, you know, hopefully within the, next, the coming weeks I'll be well under four minutes for the mile, and I'll be able to really be in the mix at NCAA indoor championships in the mile. Fast forward the clock three years, and my personal best was four minutes zero zero point two four. Hadn't managed to get under, and it had become this real labor of love, I guess you could call it. I don't know what, or, or kind of monkey on my back. I'd run 401, 403, 402, four flat, 401. Just could not do it for the life of me. 2009, I just hadn't done it. I was getting married to my wife, Priscilla, and I was kind of, I burned out, you know, in terms of just trying to do too many things. I was trying to coach a bit, you know, doing boots and boot camp coaching and some speed agility, quickness kind of stuff with kids and then trying to prepare for our wedding. And I called, called it a season early, but I'd just run the Puma Unattached Mile at Mount Stack Relays. Ran against my late friend, David Torrance, who you mentioned, you know, with my email. He's at the bottom there of the, of my, on, on my quote there. Racing against him. And, and the deal was it was for a contract with, with Puma, with the brand for a, for a year where they would pay for a lot of travel and, you know, give you all the gear you, you, you could need. Ran this mile race. It was my last of the season there. And David beat me out there. He was just an amazing competitor. He was just better than me, period. But he ran in 401. I ran 402. Afterwards, he passed on his contract with Puma. He got picked up by Nike. And so he didn't take the contract. And him and I were training together at the time up there in the Bay Area and have become good friends. And um, 
called me straight up and said, Tim, I want to let you know that, you know, I passed on the contract and I really pushed them that they should take you on coming second in the race. And so they did. It kind of gave me this renewed kind of energy with my running when I got this, signed this contract with Puma. It was a very small deal, but it felt like someone, you know, on some level, it almost felt like validated me more somehow. And even by default, <laughs> the way we spin things in our mind, right? Right around that time, I'd got a new coach, a guy, Chris Papioni, who had coached my wife in college. He encouraged me to work with, to go and seek help with a, a sports psychology consultant. And I, I read this book called The Mental Athlete, which she'd written. I'd read, kind of started to dabble in that, and I really liked it. It sounds like that, but book sounds like it could be one of two things. <laughs> the Mental Athlete. <laughs> could be bad or good, right? Um, yeah. Really cool book. And I was kind of dabbling with it. And I was like, I'm going to contact her woman's called Kay Porter. I'm going to contact her and I'm going to ask her, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can do a session or two with her. And I did. And I'm really glad that I did. I mean, it was extortionately expensive, right? That's kind of how sports site works when someone's got a PhD or doctorate, you know, in it. And I uh, did a few sessions with her. She taught me affirmations, positive, constructive affirmations to use for performance and self-talk, which is hugely important. And it's at the cornerstone of my work now. Can you give us some examples of some of those, Tim? If you look at the arousal kind of continuum, we've got, you've got a few different theories of that. You've got individualized zone of optimal uh, functioning. You've got the more kind of fundamental one. You've got the inverted U hypothesis, where it says that as our arousal goes up, our performance will go up to a point at the top of the U, at which point as the arousal continues to go up, the performance will then steadily drop off. We all experience this increase in arousal and it's physiological symptoms. It's somatic kind of symptoms. So it's like, you know, rapid heart rate, you know, sweaty palms, butterflies in the stomach. It's our body's way of like, it's fight or flight, right? It's our body's way of physically preparing us for action, for battle, if you go back to the, you know, prehistoric times or whatever, right? How we interpret that feeling, the, cogn the cognitions, the thoughts that we have with those increases in arousal, physical arousal are so important because we kind of have a choice, but we don't realize that we have a choice. We can interpret those feelings as being facilitative, so really helpful, like this is ready in me for action. This is ready in me to go out there and be my best. And this is why you know, I don't feel this when I train. This is why I feel this when I race. This, this is ready in me for action to go and perform at my best. We can also go the other way, and it can be debilitative, where it can be, oh, my God. This feels awful. I hate the way this feels in my stomach. Uh, and we get this anxiety. And so this is when this whole continuum, and I won't get to continue on with that, but like it, it takes it to another step because the way that we interpret this arousal is so important. I've been going down this path of, as a miler of, of seeing this increase in arousal. I'm kind of shying away from it and being like, oh, God, I don't like how this feels. This is going to hurt. And then I get tense from that and I wouldn't, I'd, I'd kind of breathe more shallowly. I wouldn't, it resulted in me not, not being able to get the job done, you know, run a, a really good performance. And so she taught me or helped me to create three affirmations leading into a race where, you know, you'd feel these increases in arousal. I'd previously gone down this poor quality mental dialogue, self-taught dialogue with myself. And these three affirmations that she helped me create helped to anchor me back to being constructive and seeing this arousal was being really helpful for me. And so those three affirmations, and I, I love to share, you know, I, I'll, I'll share these with athletes that I work with to give them examples from which to kind of help to think about what could be good for them because it's so individualized. The first one was be relaxed, Tim. You always run your best when you're relaxed. And that's a truth. That's a, that's a truth. And I knew it to be true. 
And that's one of the important things with any kind of affirmation or any piece of self-talk. We can't lie to ourselves. We, got, we, we can't BS ourselves. We have to be truthful in what we say. The subconscious mind knows that like, that's just not true. But for me, it was like, yeah, when I've run my best, all of the races I've had in my, in my history where I've run really, really well and had a good experience, I've been relaxed. So be relaxed. Instead of worry about it, just be relaxed and enjoy this. That was my first one I read, and it'll be like, okay, and then I take a deep breath with that. And, all right, you got this. And then it was, you are strong, powerful, and in full control. And that was an affirmation of strength, my aerobic strength and the fitness that I had, the faster intervals that I'd done in the weight room work that would affirm that, like, yeah, you, you are powerful in, in terms of what you can do. And you are in full control. You're right, be right here right now. I'm in control of this. I'm not a passenger here. You know, I'm not going to be just kind of along for the ride. I'm in control of what I'm going to do here. And so that really kind of connected me to be there in the moment and very present. And then my third one was, you are the race, no one else matters. At face value, that sounds kind of almost like, I don't know, maybe arrogant or whatever, you know. But the idea behind it was that you can't control what anyone else is going to do. You can only control yourself and what you can do and how you react to things and how you and how you proact you know, and what you do. And so it helped me to recognize, like, you could see someone looking, you know, amazing doing their strides, and you could be intimidated by that, or you could just come back to you and what you can control and be my best in the moment. And those three affirmations, you know, were so incredibly important for me. And they actually ultimately helped me to unlock myself to go and break for and get out of the way of myself to break for. And that happened three or so months after at the Fifth Avenue Mile, which Puma helped to help me to get into probably had no right being in the fifth ad mile it gets routinely won in about 350 to 352 every year it's, it's an incredibly fast road mile very prestigious the brand helped me to get in as a four minute miler you know i was able to take advantage of that you know i had these moments of performance anxiety that would these waves would wash over me during the warm-up and then i keep anchoring myself back to breathing and breathing my affirmations and coming back to that and reminding myself to be present and stick to my race plan And I I was able to do just that and ran 358.30 and was able to kind of accomplish this long-term goal I'd had, you know, from when I first ran the mile three and a half years before. It's quite interesting, Tim, because some of the questions that we had lined up to ask you, we were going to say, what advice would you give the younger Tim Bailey? Or if you were going to help someone unlock their athletic potential, what advice would you give them? And you've kind of almost answered that with what you've just said. You'd say positive self-talk come up with some affirmations that help you get into the best possible running state, both physically and mentally, because you're talking about relaxation, which is going to obviously is proven to help you run better, but also the positive self-talk because the number of people that are battling their own mind during these races and Nick Gulab's episode, which is the one previous to this was brilliant. He said, I'm going to let my my body break before my mind. I like that. It was superb. And I know when I ran my 5k personal best, I had these words going over my head and it literally was stay relaxed, stay positive. You've worked for this. You've got this. Stay relaxed, stay positive. You've worked hard for this. You've got this. And I just let that kept buzzing in my head. I obviously ran a personal best for me and I've always had a pretty positive attitude. My natural events were the sprints. Okay, into a 5k normally, I'm feeling really uncomfortable in it. And then there's a bit of self-negative talk like, God, can I keep this going for another 4k? And then eventually, you know, the distance ticks away. And and similar to what you were saying with your 5K experience, you know, suddenly 1,200 meters where you're in absolute agony becomes 
400 meters and becomes the finish where you've just run a, a remarkable time. Well, I will say the big difference between you and I is I feel like our somatotypes are just a bit different as well. You're just naturally just a little bit more muscular and bigger than I am. I think my frame was really conducive to running kind of distances, like particularly, like whereas like maybe it wasn't as conducive to sprinting, whereas I feel like your frame was a little bit more conducive to having lots of testing the sprints, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know how much you remember about us training together, but there was a session we did at Osterley Park. I don't know if you remember this, where we did like three minutes, two minutes, one minute, three minutes, two minutes, one minute, where it was kind of like a minute's recovery in between. And I, I just remember with you, I'd obviously trained with sprinters and I trained with some pretty quick guys like Graham Beasley. I think he'd around like 20.5 or whatever. And obviously Lawrence Obo, who was, you know, made the final of the World Juniors and, and, you know, one of our best junior international sprinters. I remember you didn't have that initial kind of like quickness off the mark, but I'd never trained with anybody that could just keep going. The one other thing I remember is just your cadence as well. It was like... And you just seem to keep this quick rhythm within your running. We didn't talk about this at the time, really. It was just an obvious thing that happened in training. But I kind of knew there that your ideal distance was probably beyond the 400, which I think at the time was maybe your focus when you were training with me. But it's just interesting reflecting now and, and listening to these conversations. And I, we kind of said off, offline as well, why didn't we have these conversations back then? Why didn't we have these intentional conversations? And I know. It's like I was saying then, I think it's like we, we can only work with where we're at in the moment, right? And at the time, yeah, constantly learning and growing and changing and having different experiences. And I think it kind of leads you down that path to become maybe even more curious, you know, than what you are as a, you know, an 18, 19 year old, you know? So I guess if I was to, if I was to talk to my younger self and I would encourage this, I think of, of, of any young, you know, young athletes who are kind of just kind of trying to make their way in a sport and, and trying to realize their own personal potential. I already mentioned about, you know, how helpful self-talk was for me. And I think I think I would encourage myself definitely to talk positively and constructively to myself and remind myself of things that would be helpful to me to perform. But I think another big part in terms of goal setting is is to try not to be too outcome orientated. I think when we when we set goals, we can typically, if we don't have any real understanding of how to how to effectively goal set, we go to these outcome goals. I think when we set these outcome goals, they're extremely helpful when we're a long way away from them because it helps to drive up our motivation and helps us to, you know, to really dig in and, and train hard. But I think I would encourage my younger self or, or a younger runner to set to really dig in on setting process goals, really trying to hold themselves to those on a week to week basis to see this, to kind of really see this growth as they go forward. And I think that when we set process goals, it anchors us in a little bit more towards being closer to the present moment and closer to the now. And I think we can really enjoy the experience more. I think for me, you know, if I have any, I don't necessarily call it a regret, you know, like I say, we only work with what we've got in, at the time, right? But rather than being so transfixed on like, okay, I want to, you know, like for example, the 2008 Olympic trials, I just really badly wanted to try and make, make a team. And I was so transfixed on that that I think I lost, it, it took away from some of that experience of all of the preparation, all the other races and that, that I had leading up towards that. And I think when you then arrive in that moment of truth, when you're there, it puts a whole lot more pressure on that. Whereas I think if you can kind of really embrace the day-to-day -day more, love what you do, really lean into that and, and look for opportunities within your training that will help to really help to support you both mentally and physically when that moment of truth comes around and that, that outcome goal does come around. 
I think that would be a big piece I'd, I'd, I'd encourage myself in, you know, just to try and enjoy the day to day and love, you know, love what this opportunity I have to do because it doesn't last forever, you know, and it's an amazing thing that we get to do. And uh, it's kind of a privilege in many ways, you know, to be able to train like that and, and get after it, you know, really leaning in and embracing that daily. That's great advice. I think that's part of forming good habits as well, right? As well, this process, if you start focusing on that process, then the good habits will come and yeah, and the consistency will come as well. And I think we're all just uh, we're all just a collection of habits, ultimately, aren't we? Creature of habits. <laughs> can we minimise the you know less constructive kind of habits, the ones that can potentially get in the way of our performance or enjoyment of our performance? And can we maximise creating really good systems and, and processes, habits, you know, that are going to support excellence or the pursuit of excellence? So, what are your current goals and processes that you want to go moving forward with? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> I feel like I jump all over the place now um, in terms of what I'm, I like want to do. And I went through a little phase where, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 39 now. I thought it'd be really fun to see if I could break four for 15 and maybe break two again for the eight like next year, you know, post-COVID. And then I was talking to a, a really good friend of mine, my best friend from college, Phil. He's a Green Beret Special Forces. So he, he was an 800 guy. He ran that 150 in college when we were running together. We, we had a really good chat uh, a couple of weeks back. And he's done a few Spartan races. He's obviously done all of the training that goes into special forces, which is a lot of ruck marching and extremely hard physical stuff under sleep deprivation. He was strongly encouraging me to have a go, have a look at the Spartan race and see about kind of, you know, just seeing what I could do in that and doing some training towards that because he felt like the endurance background that I have, if I could get the mobility and the strength piece down kind of coupled with that, it could, could let me, you know, let me have some good experience with that and have some fun with that. I think you have the best possible foundation moving into that sport, Tim. And um, myself and Johnny would be more than happy to guide you into the type of other training apart from running that that would be helpful to do. And out of all of the experiences of all the types of sport I've tried, nothing compares to to obstacle course racing and Spartan racing. Knowing you and, and looking at what you've achieved, I think you could absolutely go in there and, and kill it. And I think the encouraging thing about Spartan is if you look at the guys that have really rose to the top so many of those guys are in their 40s you know there's been a couple of spartan world champions recently that that have hit 40 and peaked at that kind of age and you in your late 30s it looks like if you if you're still targeting a sub two minute 800 and and so forth and and a sub four minute 1500 then if you've got that kind of speed and 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 everything else then you could go in there and, and tear it up and i know races are on hold at the moment but yeah let's definitely chat further leading into that we'll point you in the right direction and focus on the process okay (laughs) make sure you focus on the process exactly right (laughs) i know a good sports psychologist if you need to chat to one in your area okay (laughs) we're going to go with a bit of quick fire to finish so let's say you're going to run a 5k road race next week what shoe are you going to wear i wear hoka one ones or hoka only only however you want to pronounce it so i wear a hoka flat i like it It i don't feel as beat up from wearing it and it's very lightweight as well i'm a massive fan of those shoes you wouldn't go with a carbon fiber plate shoe for a 5k no because of the research on it i just think maybe if you were training i think it could be good i know charlie grice has done a lot of training in those nike what they called nike is it vaporfly yeah you've got the vaporfly alpha fly yeah next percent yeah been training in those and he said it feels fantastic but to race in i think that's another thing and it's like some of the research that ross tucker's come up with and discussed you know and it just seems to me like if something's kind of slightly questionable why bother you know okay so you can only race in one arena either indoor track outdoor track trail or road where would you race indoor nice love it your go-to pre-race fuel fluid a friend of mine 
Richard Smith, who lives 400 meters down the street, him and uh, his wife are good friends of, of ours. He kind of from grassroots up, Cal Poly grad from the sports science program there, has created this fantastic brand called Fluid and just built out of his own, out, start initially out of his own garage. And now it's pretty popular around California and, and surrounding states. And so uh, I'd, I'd support that brand and use that as a really good product. For a pre-race, have they got like a caffeine? Yeah, they have it all. They've got the pre-race, they've got the electrolyte, they've got the post-race, and they have protein one as well. So it, it's a really good product, and it's been kind of fun to us be hanging out with him, and he's like, here, try this, and he'll mix something up and add in some cinnamon or something from his shelf, and then what do you guys think? Really cool to see and see the passion of that creativity that, that, that you know he brings to that product. That would absolutely be my go-to. Yeah, nice. Okay, uh, go-to post-race meal. Am I in England or am I in the United States? Wherever you want to be, mate. To get your best post-race meal anywhere in the world. And is this end of season or is this uh, this kind of midway through the season? Sorry, another question there. Let's get end of se- end of season post-race meal. You've, you've just hit the 357 mile. Indian, a big, it, it would be a toss up between uh, Indian and fish and chip. Uh. Yeah, nice. Must have training equipment other than your shoes. Battlestar. This product by Rogue Fitness, it's called a, it's called a Battlestar. It's like a barbell, but with like blue skateboard wheels kind of. And it, so it's like a bar and it sits in a cradle. It's kind of got the, the ridges from the wheels. It, it takes rolling to a completely different level. And my calves, my hamstring, my, my body would probably fall apart at this age with how much I've been, the decent amount of volume I've been able to train, would probably fall apart without using this thing. So uh, that would that would be my go-to. I've never heard of that, Johnny, have you? Nope, I just had to Google it up really quick. <laughs> what was your favorite training session when you were competing? Cool, that's a tough one. Um, I'll say one for the 800. And it would be, I, and I did this this workout really one time. It was just, it will always stick in my memory. It was about two weeks before the 08 trials. I ran three 400s off 10 minutes recovery. I went 49, two, 49, three, 50.1. Wow. And it was a really, really hard workout, but it, it felt pretty amazing to do. I had one other comes to mind with the eight as well. Where I had a three, two, one, where I ran, um, sorry, a four, three, two, one, where I ran 47, five, 35, something 22 high and then whatever i closed in the in the hundred in that was off long recoveries as well and that was another one that stuck in my mind good fun speed endurance workouts both of them. what was the session you feared the most one that i feared the most i think and and is i never managed i never managed to nail was you'd run a 600 at 800 meter race pace so but borderline you know red line pretty much as hard as you can you know trying to go through at a time going through and about trying to go through a 52 take 30 seconds recovery and run a 200. 10 minutes recovery and then do that again. Wow. I'd always implode on that second set. Just couldn't hit it. But I know people who have, you know, and it's, it's like a incredibly tough workout to it do. It sounds similar to the split two session where you do 200, 30 seconds, 200, full recovery, repeat. And yeah, yeah. That sounds worse. What you've just <laughs> said. It's double the distance. Tim, the 400 meter runner when I was younger, I'd be like, oh my God, the, the two, the split twos. As an 800-meter runner, that one doesn't sound so daunting. And I think it's um, maybe where you kind of get used to racing double the distance and you can't get out as fast. I think it, it's in, it's kind of interesting that, you know, how – and then you kind of move up to the 15 and then the 6-2 times 2 doesn't sound quite as daunting. Kind of a product of what we're, what we're, our focus is, I guess, you yeah. know. What, what was the best way you liked to recover away from training? Sports massage. Nice. Love getting sports massage. Um, I, I, always, I still get uh, chiropractic adjustments now, and I, I'm a big uh, – I find that those are really helpful for me as well. Cool. 
most inspirational book or film? Wow, that's a good. That's a really good question. I've read so many, been so lucky to read so many books and, and seen so many movies. Obviously, like, like everyone else, and, and um, I guess it comes down to my wife and I met a guy called Louis Zamperini back in 2010 up in Lafayette, where we used to live in the East Bay area. He was the main person in this book, which turned movie called Unbroken. By the movie was produced by Angelina Jolie, yep. and the book was incredible by Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote Sea Biscuit. You know, I feel privileged to have, you know, us to be able to sp- have been able to spend an afternoon and, and an evening having dinner with him back three years before he passed. I think he was 92 at the time. Unbelievably inspire- inspiring individual. You know, the longevity and the, the sharpness that he had, the wit, the hunger for life. And I read the book before I met him as well. And it was just, that was pretty special. And that book was the book and then the movie just really, just really special. I'd highly recommend them to anyone, yeah. you know, particularly as we, age and go through life and our goals and our, our you know our goalposts shift in terms of what we're trying to do his ability to rebound back off of adversity he was an alcoholic for a period of time after world war ii and came back and, and and was able to just live this incredibly long life inspiring a lot of kids and helping kids to try and be more his, his slogan was uh, be hardy and he, he felt like our generation kind of us i guess and younger felt like we weren't tough enough like we're like second world war kind of generation you know yeah. Amazing guy, amazing book. Sounds like an incredible experience. I love that film. One final question for you, Tim. Complete this sentence. The best track and field athlete of all time is? <laughs> oh, wow. Best track and field athlete of all time. I think you have to say Usain Bolt. I think there's no there's no get, getting around that with what he's been able to accomplish and was able to do over an, over an extended period of time as well was pretty remarkable. You know, you could look at different events and, and, you know, different eras. I mean, Jesse Owens was just absolutely incredible when you think about the pressure he had to boycott that Olympics and then being there in, in, in that, that Nazi Germany and, and performing like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, almost be a toss-up between those two guys. Cool. So wrapping things up, is there any uh, sponsors or anything anybody would like to shout out? My friend Rich there with Fluid, I mean, that's a, that's a great product. Yeah, that will probably be it, I guess, Fluid Sports Nutrition. Yeah, we'll definitely link it in, and uh, I mean, I'll definitely check it out too after this. How would people find you? How do they get in touch? Go to my website, um, which I'm just kind of fin- putting the finishing touches to, uh, timbailey.com, or contact me, just contact me at my um, my email. It's uh, straight up timbailey at gmail.com, no gimmicks. And that's spelled B-A-Y, uh, as in the Bay Area, L-E-Y, not the, like the drink, but with a Y. Awesome, awesome. And it could be Dr. Tim Bailey by next year, right? Tim, been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. It's been too long, my friend, and I know we're going to continue this conversation offline. Thank you for sharing your insights, all of the top things that you've done in your career. We know there is a lot of information out there for our guests to unlock their athletic potential. Awesome. Well, Johnny, really nice to meet you, mate. And uh, Deethi, great to see you and look forward to talking more. For sure. Ian. Hey, Johnny. Such incredible range from Tim there, man. It was, uh, I guess the part that really stood out for me was where he had that success in those back-to-back races, you know, finishing off what he believed with was his best performance in the NCAA champs. And it was just that case of being patient, years of hard work. When the results plateaued, he just kept at it. And, you know, how many of us feel like stopping when results flatten out because we start to not believe that this journey is going to continue to go upwards. You know, we, we just have to trust the process, be patient, and understand that the journey to unlock an athletic potential isn't always this smooth upward trajectory. Um, but once the ball starts rolling, that brings the confidence. And that was huge. And, you know, not just only affected his 
athletic potential, but his life potential when that confidence led him to going up to chat to the girl that eventually ended up becoming his wife. And now he's a husband and a father. It's crazy. Absolutely. And that, that sense of patience and, and just respecting the time that you need, those are very, very important things. But switching back, I think similar to our episode with Ann Gritton, who we've had on at episode five, he said he had to remove the distraction of his life because at that time he was working, going out, studying, and it was really pulling him away from his biggest goals in life and trying to be the best athlete possible. So like, he stopped it all. And from there, he actually changed over and became the athlete he wanted to be. Yeah, it's tricky, man. You know, there's so many things that could take our attention in life. But yeah, finding out what's really important to us. Yeah, totally relate to that. I love that part with the challenge from Steve Cram, where he said, look, we need some of our 400 meter runners to step up to the 800. And it's not just the fact that Tim took on that challenge. I love the fact he actually went up to Steve Cram and asked him how he could you know, meet that challenge. Just like with Simon O'Brien, like in that previous episode, where he just kept asking the questions, sending off the letters. You know, there were many examples of Tim going up to people who were involved in elite sport and just asking them for advice. And on many occasions, he got that advice back and was able to tap into the coaches and resources that made him become the athlete he is. So, and I think with Tim, some of the best takeaways I got from this episode was really his use of positive affirmation. So the three that stuck out that he mentioned was one, be relaxed when you're going to a race, whatever it is, be relaxed because you've done the work for it already. Uh, two was you are strong, powerful, and in control. Having that just mentality of knowing that gives you a major boost in mental capacity and also pushes towards your physical capacity, right? And the third one is that you are the race and nothing else matters because you are there at that time focusing on that one thing and you can only control what you can do versus what anybody else can affect you. So I think with those three positive affirmations, I think they're great takeaways for myself. And I think for you guys as our listeners, maybe some of these might relate to how you can implement into your running and your own performance. And that, my friends, is Unlocking Athletic Potential. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and taking something away with you to help you perfect your craft.